0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I am honored that you are here. Thank you so much. It was not long ago I got an email from Bill Boggs. He was nice enough to write and it reminded me of our mutual love of Frank Sinatra. And this interview we did in 2016, it was to celebrate Sinatra 101, 101 years since the birth of the great singer. This was broadcast on the radio in Charleston, South Carolina, and it has not been available as a podcast until now. I wanted to get this out there. To tell you a little bit more about the man, Bill Boggs is a four-time Emmy Award winning television host interviewer and author as a broadcast journalist bill boggs interviewed many famous figures but perhaps none as legendary as the singer and actor frank sinatra the historic first ever tv talk show interview with frank sinatra was hosted by bill boggs boggs once said much of my life has been intertwined with frank sinatra's he was kind enough to join me for a second time on the paul leslie hour where we took a close look at Frank Sinatra, who has been called one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by listeners and viewers like you. Go to www.thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. It only takes a moment and means the world. Consider telling someone, online or in person, about this interview. Let's get into the second interview with Bill Boggs, right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, the man we're presenting here, Bill Boggs, for an interview so neat, we need to repeat. This is a man cut out of the same cloth as Dick Cavett and Steve Allen. But anyone who knows Bill Boggs knows that his life has been intertwined with Frank Sinatra's. So in celebration of Sinatra 101, we welcome Bill Boggs. Thank you for making the time.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul, for a lovely, lovely introduction. and Happy December 12th, and happy Frank Sinatra's birthday. We can sing happy birthday to Frank, but we won't sound as good as he does, so let's uh, let it go, and happy birthday, Frank.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think when you look at someone's life, it's not a bad idea to start at the beginning, Maybe you could tell a little bit about the birth of Frank Sinatra to our listeners.
1: Well, yeah. Well, it was uh, 1915, right? 101 years ago today. And it was a home birth, you know, with a midwife, not in the hospital, uh, that, over in Hoboken. And in attendance was a midwife and, you know, I guess like a, a maternal aunt and maybe a couple other women. And the Sinatra was a gigantic baby. He was about 14 pounds, and the birth was extremely complicated—a breech birth. They uh, to get the baby Sinatra out, there, they used forceps that ripped off half of his
0: right ear and
1: put scars down his, across his neck and down his, halfway down his back. Later in life, the Ear was partially corrected by classic surgery. But if you look at any straight head on shot, Frank, uh, one ear is different than the other. And then, after they finally, you know, had somehow gotten baby out, they left the baby for dead, thinking that he was stillborn, and they were working feverishly. Obviously, a doctor had been summoned, I suppose. Oh, they had plugged into on a phone in 1915. But and to save his mother, Dolly,'s life, and then the maternal aunt, seeing, a, you know, baby, newborn Sinatra there, took him over to one of those old cast-iron sinks, that, you know, having in the basement, which I believe the birth was in the basement of the house in Hoboken, and uh, held the baby by his ankles and feet under really cold torrent tar- of, of water from the faucet, and smashed and smashed and smashed, his back until the fluid cleared from his lungs and he took his first breath. So Sinatra literally came into the world uh, fighting for his life. That's an actual, literal fact.
0: Do you think in some ways that was kind of some foreshadowing, fighting for life?
1: Well, I think so. You know, I think so. It's Just like uh, Elvis Presley was born twin. He, twi- he had a twin brother named Aaron. And the twin brother died at birth. And his mother, Gladys Presley, always said, Pat Elvis has the energy of two boys. So, yeah, maybe. I mean, when Sinatra was on his deathbed at the hospital, Cedar Sinai Hospital in L.A., Nancy Sinatra is reported to have said, fight, that fight. And Frank responded by saying, I am fighting, but I'm losing. That's supposed to be among his last words. So it's a pretty dramatic birth and death.
0: What is it about Frank Sinatra that makes him such an intriguing person that we want to learn so much about him?
1: That's a giant question, Paul. I mean, you can start with, obviously, the music. You can start with the confidence that he conveyed. You can start with the charisma that he projected. The you know the story of his life the rise, the fall I think that he is a star who really appealed equally to men and women. There are many great stars today. Like I think if you look at say Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, it's probably the same with them that they appeal equally to men and women. It's not always the case. So I mean there's just a lot of reasons why Sinatra captured people's imaginations early on. I think a lot of, you know, part of it, I think, is a great lesson. There's a lot to be learned from the lessons of great and successful people. In my recent, not recent, but in my 2008 book, Got What It Takes, I have this quote right at the beginning by Wordsworth. Lives of great men all remind us that we can make our lives sublime and the parting leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. So I think studying Frank's life is uh, is interesting. I, I've i always been fascinated by his absolute raving ambition and confidence to deliver the goods behind that ambition. It's one thing to be very ambitious, and he was a highly ambitious man. The, the other thing is you have to have the talent to back it up.
0: What do you think his greatest talent was? I mean, the obvious answer I think, to a lot of people, is his voice, but we can't forget his acting. But just tell us a little bit about that, if you could put it into words, his greatest talent.
1: I think his greatest talent was singing and making you believe that he was singing to you. The sense of intimacy that he conveyed while singing. My mother, as a Bobby Soxer, said that was, the, and my mother loved music. she t- first time she saw Tannot so she said, I felt like he was singing directly to me. But that you do not deal with all singers. But some you do, some you don't. But I think that was probably the greatest capacity that he had. There's a huge amount of other things there, but I'll I'll pick that as number one.
0: How do you think he accomplished that? The ability to make the listener feel like he was singing directly to him or her.
1: I don't really know. I know that he when I interviewed Frank Sinatra, I asked him about the emotionality in some of, you know, in the ballads. When I, I said, I felt like, many, you know, I've, I've seen you many times, that you're singing these great ballads, like here's the rainy day, it's quarter to three, the rain or come shine, whatever. You know, I feel like these are real emotions. And Frank said, yes, I think they are. And then he went on to elaborate, which would be, a lesson for any singer, he said, I think that what I, what I do is if I pick a piece of material that's in the ballad vein, what I try to do is put myself in the position of the person who would be experiencing that at that time. And mm-hmm. thus, by the song, I'm making the case uh, that that person would make. And then he said, I've worked like that all the way back from the very beginning. So that's a partial answer. I think a partial answer. Part of it may just be the actual uh, timbre of his voice, and I think that the, his acting ability, which you mentioned, you know, when you phrased the question, he was absolutely a great actor. That he, you, be, if you believe, but if you believe, you know, you know, I got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow, that he was experiencing that at that time. I think that helped you feel that you were experiencing at that time that must excellent communication with you
0: our special guest is bill boggs as you mentioned your mother a big fan of frank sinatra and you also mentioned your son having the opportunity to see frank sinatra i think you said seven times that's correct so frank sinatra it's in your blood
1: my, I mean, my son is a third-generation Sinatra fan. That's absolutely right. And he met he met Frank backstage at Radio City Music Hall before a rare Saturday matinee. Frank had had to cancel shows because his uh, his voice was his voice was bad. He had a horrible cold. He wanted to go on, but Doctor Glenn Corbin, who was his doctor. The same doctor who by the way was involved in the unfortunate demise of Joe Rivers had went to Radio City Music Hall and examined him and said, You cannot go on, you're gonna really hurt yourself if you do. So he, he had to cancel the show and that show was made up a rare Saturday matinee at Radio City Musical with an evening show that night and Trevor and I went because we had been to the show that got canceled. And We were sitting there, and the show got canceled. We ran around outside, we saw Frank coming out, getting into his car, looking pretty sad and dejected that he wasn't able to go on. I mean, we're not talking about a Kanye West here who had temporary psychosis. He was really sick.
0: (laughs) For anyone out there who's listening, most people, I would guess, have not had the opportunity to see Frank Sinatra in performance if you could describe what that's like to see a Frank Sinatra concert.
1: Well, I would recommend trying to get, the. And it's easy to get, there's a, a series of, of live concert shows called the Concert Sinatra on, on DVD. And the one I like best is the one from London, Royal Festival Hall. That's a fabulous live show. And there was a real, look, Think of anyone you like, okay? What it would be like anticipating they're going to come on stage. The way it worked was there would be some form of open. show was called for 8 o'clock, right? Started 8 o'clock on the dot. Never like 8.10, 8.12, 8 o'clock. The opening act could have been like a comedian. I've seen, I've seen Don Rickles, Trini Roman, a lot of the, Dick Capri, a lot of different comedians opening open red buttons, opening for Frank. Or it could have been uh, every once in a while he'd have a singer opening. I saw John Pizzarelli open. I saw Oscar Peterson open for Frank. I saw Count Basie open for Frank. I saw Ella Fitzgerald open for Frank. So it could there would be an opening act. In the case of Ella, that was a full concert at the U.S. Theater, not like you know a nightclub. Then there'd be an intermission, and you know. Like It would always be this sort of oh, letdown when the comedian goes off because the people who are unfamiliar with the format didn't know there's going to be an intermission, right? I saw Frank Contra so much, you know, at some point, like when he was at Carnegie Hall around the corner for me, I could time it to, like, have four or five people in my apartment drinking champagne, leave the apartment, walk from Central Park South, comba Circle, around the corner, 57th Street and, and 7th Avenue and um, walk into Carnegie Hall, walk down to our seats, and two minutes later, Frank would come out, five minutes later, three minutes later. I could time it that well. You know, I knew what was going on. So Frank would come out, and it's always extremely exciting. The very it's like I took Ian Hunter once, the rock musician, to see Frank. And when Frank came out, Ian Hunter turned to he and said, there he is. Like, wow, that person you've heard about all your life, seen in movies and on TV, they're standing there. That person is actually standing there. And it's always generally an tempo number. Where or When was one of my very favorite openers of his because it had sort of a mystical quality. Or I've got the world on a string. One time I saw Frank at Radio City Music Hall. His opening number was New York, New York. He opened with New York, New York. which ended up being his closer. That was very exciting. And um, so there was like an electric presence because he himself generated an electric presence and then he settled in. And what was basically usually an hour and 10 minutes of music took on a panoramic aura of the emotions that were covered, the colorations in the songs. And when it was over, you almost, you know, you had gone through some ups and some downs and felt that you would have spent much more than, say, an hour and 10 or an hour and 15 minutes. But Frank had a great economy of style. In all the times I saw him perform, more than 100 times, I never once felt he's going on too long, which, you know, I've seen Springsteen, and I like Springsteen, and I thought, he, he's going on too long. It's just too long. Three hours is too long. But that doesn't mean anything's wrong with him. People love him for three hours. That's just my... Personal taste. Always remember, Nietzsche said one absolute in life is taste cannot be debated. People will always disagree about taste. I never argue about taste. Oh, I didn't like Sammy Davis. Well, I did. I can't make somebody, can't convince them to like somebody they don't like. Anyway, so it was an extremely electric atmosphere.
0: And in the recordings, I think a lot of people would say, that there's a definite atmosphere as well. And for anyone yeah, out there yeah. who's who's looking to begin their journey into Sinatra listening, Frank Sinatra left behind just an incredible discography, so, so much work. What album do you, Bill Boggs, recommend to a beginner?
1: Well, that's an excellent question.
0: Hmm.
1: You either can go in the direction of all ballads, or all up tempo, or a blend like Come Fly With Me. I would say start with an up tempo album from the mid 50s. It's like uh, the sh- the Shank of the great work of Nelson Riddle, like uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers or a Swingin' Affair. They're all standards, and the, the beat on those albums, the or- orchestrations by Nelson Riddle, really represented a departure from anything that had been recorded exactly in that way before. Now, when you hear, like, you're too marvelous for words, or I've got you under my skin, they're, you know, like, really iconic arrangements. But the, these were, when people heard them for the first time, there was a newness to it in terms of the, the orchestrations and the jazz inflection. So I would say, start with that as a, a up-tempo. And then the next one I would get would be Nice and easy. Well, nice and easy is a beautiful ballad album recorded in 1959, again with Nelson Riddle. That has the up-tempo, mid-range tempo song, nice and easy, written by the Bergmans. But then the rest of the album is just beautifully sung ballads. It's not a like a suicide album. It's not a an album like Only the Lonely, We Small Hours of the Morning, Where Are You. It's not like one of those albums of of despair and and longing.
0: You mentioned that in a Frank Sinatra concert, you feel all of the ups and downs of human emotion, and not unlike his life. You know, a lot of people forget that although Frank Sinatra was this huge star, and still is, that he had a downfall and he had a comeback.
1: Oh, yes, that's true. That's, That's quite true. You know, it's, it's very important to understand the totality of someone's life. Let me talk about Elvis for a minute. I worked with, when I was at Channel 4, anchoring the news in New York, I worked with a, an anchor who went to an Ivy League school, and it's an intelligent woman who only thought Elvis Presley was a fat guy in, in funny suits in Las Vegas. She had no idea the totality of, of what Elvis Presley was. You know, this amazingly handsome guy who revolutionized rock and roll, who, who brought the guitar into mainstream American life. Well, prior to that, everybody played the piano, was learning, learning to play the piano. Can't look at the totality of Elvis's life. You know, he, he got addicted to uh, uppers, speed in the army. And never never really never really shook that addiction. You know, that that's an element people don't know about. And, of course, he had terrible eating habits and he lived like a recluse. He didn't have a normal life like Frank Sinatra. If you look at Elvis and Michael Jackson, gigantic, singular stars like Frank with, with their own imprint. But neither one of them had a normal life. And they didn't go out walking around, but Frank would go to restaurants in New, in New York or, or in Beverly Hills, whoever he was. If Frank did a show in Milwaukee, he might end up at the Muleback Hotel at the bar at three o'clock in the morning. He went out. When I interviewed him, he said he loves to walk down Madison Avenue, go shopping. You know, he had had to be careful where I go. If I go to Coney Island, I can get mobbed. But, you know, that's understandable. Just like Drew Carey was with him once at Disneyland. You know, he spent two hours signing autographs. So the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is that you have to understand the totality of someone's life. But in, but in order to not remember them just as they were at the end, you know? So what happened to Frank was, now the, anyone listening I was paying attention will sound to be shocked by this, but Frank was a teen idol, very much like Justin Bieber. This is pretty much before the teen culture that came in with Elvis. So Frank had these very young, predominantly female fans. And they were with him, but, Teen fans are fickle. So by the late 40s, Frank was the highest paid star in the world. By the early 50s, music tastes had changed. His personal life was in turmoil because of the running around with Ava Gardner when he was married to Nancy. Nancy uh, had children. This is like scandalous. These days, you know, celebrities are having sex changes on television. But now, back then, in 1940-50, So he really lost his audience. And Sinatra went from being the highest paid star in the world to somebody who was literally counted out of the business. No real record contract, no real agent. Once flew with just a pianist all the way from L.A. to Hawaii to make $1,500 and ended up doing a show in a tent in the rain to make that money. And yet he came back And he came back not by uh, his singing, but by his acting ability, by uh, getting the part flying all the way from Africa to Los Angeles to audition for a part that he said he would do for scale in From Here to Eternity. The part had already been assigned to Eli Wallach, and Frank's wife, Ava, petitioned the producers of the movie. Ava Gardner was a. Very successful actress. She was at the time way more successful than Frank when they were married, which couldn't have been easy for him. But anyway, so Frank auditioned, and got that part, and won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And that night that he won the Academy Award, he didn't go to the big party at Chasen's. He didn't go to any of the governor's ball or anything like that. He got his. He took his daughter Nancy home because Nancy, his daughter, accompanied him. And he got in his car, he drove into Beverly Hills, he parked the car, and he walked around in the dark for two hours with the Oscar in his hand, realizing I'm back.
0: Wow. Is there a song from Frank Sinatra's that you would say, uh, from an emotional standpoint, most resonates with you?
1: Oh, sure. My theme song is That's Life.
0: And why in is
1: it? 1960- well because that's how I look at life. You know, you're riding high in April and uh, shot down in May. Now I'm going to change it too when I'm back on top in June. Mm. And I think you have to always recognize that, you know, that it's easy to be happy during the good times, but when you get knocked down, you have to get up. It's, a, it's one of the many autobiographical songs that Sinatra recorded. And I, I like it because it's a semi rock. I love rock and roll. And it's like a semi, it's, it's a very bluesy song, That's Life. Well, that's been my theme song for many, many years. There's, there are dozens of Sinatra songs I love. But That's Life is my theme song. It's not my favorite song. My favorite song of all time is As, A.S., by Stevie Wonder, from the, the album Songs in the Key of Love. Ah. So,
0: having had the opportunity to be in the presence of Frank Sinatra, what would you describe that as like to be in the presence of Frank Sinatra?
1: Well, that's, that's, that's a good question. You know what I realized, Paul? I said this to my friend Joe D'Anthony the other day. It's, you know, I, When I first met Frank, I was, I was a young guy, I was like uh, 30, 32 years old, right? And now I'm in my 70s, and I'm one of those guys who knew Frank. I'm one of those guys who, when I was 32, well, he knows Frank, he, you know, I became that person. And that's really interesting to me, that, that I could be on the radio talking about Frank like this because of the fact that I did that interview with him all those years ago in 1975, the longest interview of his career on Midday Live with Bill Boggs. Anyway, so I guess it was probably, other than the interview, and meeting Frank in Vegas and seeing him the next night was probably in his... I have records of it. If I, if I had to write it down, I could write down every time I was with Frank backstage at a couple of parties, one party in New York, one party at Atlantic City. I took a lovely picture of Frank with my mother, probably 15, 18 times, and have letters from Frank, one about a TV show I did that he liked, very nice letter from him. Anyway... There are people who have what the Marines call command posture. And pull command posture is a British military term. And it means in a room full of officers, you know, all dressed up in their uniforms, like on a Saturday night at some kind of a function, in that room full of, say, 30 officers, the officer who has command posture is the officer who projects the most authority simply by the way he carries himself. And Sinatra had command posture. You could feel the energy coming off Frank, even if he was behind you. It's just one of those intangible qualities that some people have. So it was always interesting to look in his face and the amazingly cobalt blue eyes, you on know, the handsome handsome, interesting face. He had that ability which is a very important ability to really be with you in the moment, even if it might have been like 12 other people backstage. It was all like, hey, Billy, how you doing? Looking directly at him. Was it like looking over my shoulder to see who's coming in? That's a good quality. Everybody should try to cultivate that quality. So I think that being in Frank's presence was always hugely special for me because I'm a fan. But, I, again, he radiated an energy that I think came from – comes from an inner core of confidence.
0: On your website, BillBoggs.com, there is mm-hmm. a link to Bill Boggs TV, and there's a lot YouTube, of content.
1: YouTube, yeah. Yeah, yeah your right.
0: YouTube. And one of the things I found on the YouTube channel I was watching was the, the clip of you and Frank Sinatra together. Oh,
1: yeah. A little clip from my long interview. I put the toast on the, the very end of the interview I asked Frank to make a toast similar to the one he was giving at the Euros theater every night to all of our viewers. And the toast really holds up, you know, all these years later, 40 years later, the toast, toast still holds up.
0: Well, from that interview that you did with Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. what would you say is the biggest thing that you learned?
1: What he said about ballad singing, uh, Not, the, there um, there's no other record of Frank Sinatra talking about that. What he's, uh, and I uh, just, I asked him, I didn't ask him like gossipy crap. The reason he did the interview was he knew instinctively he could trust me. I never asked him to come and be on my show, Paul. We met at four o'clock in the morning. We were introduced by his friend, Jilly Rizzo. Four o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas, after that very night, I, with a with, with friend of mine, Elaine Jessimer, author of the best-selling book, Number One with a Bullet, and we went to see Elvis Presley's first show, Frank Sinatra's second show. That was a big night. It was her birthday. And after the show, she went back to her room, and I wandered around, ran into Jilly, who said, would you like to meet Frankie? Jilly knew me from TV and from work I did with Sammy Davis Jr. And an hour later, he said, be over at that lounge in an hour, which turned out to be 4 o'clock in the morning he introduced me to Frank. We talked for 10, 12 minutes. Frank immediately knew he could trust me immediately knew it. And we had a, just a conversation. It was like, no BS. We were. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Julie says you have a show on five in New York. Yes. He says, well, I don't want to promise anything. This is Easter Sunday morning. So it's April, but um, maybe I'll come by and do your show. I'm going to be in New York with Ellen Basie in September. And he did. That this, uh, just one of those things was meant to be. When I say that, I don't mean that bragging, but that within the cards that was gonna happen. I had a dream before I went to Las Vegas that I was gonna meet Frank and he's gonna come and do my show. Because I got a prescient, a prescient dream. I actually had it, told the executive producer I, I've got Paul, I said I've got this feeling. I'm gonna meet Frank this weekend, he's gonna come and do midday. And Paul laughed in my face and it happened. So it was meant to be. It was a long interview, but basically Stage technique, ballad singing. Frank hated. He said, "I hate. Always hated when I go to someone's house and I'm in their house at a dinner and they've got my music playing in the background." I said, "I can understand that." I said, "I don't like when anybody's playing your music as background music. I don't like any vocals." You go to someone's house, twelve, fifteen people standing around, and they have music on in the background, not that you're listening to, with someone singing songs. You can't quite hear them. It's just noise. If you want background music, play like jazz or instrumentals, not vocals. That's the best advice I could give anybody who's having a party. Unless you want to dance. But otherwise, why play music with words that you can't hear?
0: Hmm. That's a good point.
1: You got me going here, Paul. You got me going. (laughs) Good, good. Well. Bill Boggs, social tips. Anytime you want to do something on entertaining or civility, Paul. I want to form something called the Civility Project uh, that would be like commercials about how to act civil in various situations, like not honking your horn endlessly at 4 o'clock in the morning because somebody's blocking you, you know, like civil behavior. Um, I'm all for civil, civil behavior, not, not civil disobedience, civil behavior.
0: <laughs> well, manners maketh man, right? Manners are
1: important. Indeed. To not have impeccable manners.
0: Yes. There have been a few people that have told me that about his manners, that he not yeah,
1: very good manners. Yeah.
0: Always stood when a woman entered the room. Right. Had a lot of those types of of right. traits.
1: That's that's correct. That's right, Paul.
0: Well, something about interview ease is that you know, sometimes you have people, I'm sure you've experienced this, where you ask them a question and you ask them for example, what was that like and they say it was good. And you're like, okay, well, tell us, what was Frank Sinatra like to interview? Did he know how to give a good interview?
1: Oh, that's interesting. No one ever asked me that, actually, Paul. It was very simple. I set it up like a conversation, not an interview. Obviously, I was the leader of the conversation, but it wasn't like question number one, question number two. It was, I followed him and I followed his What he said, I listened to it and just kind of continued the conversation from there. So although obviously it was an interview, it comes off more like a conversation between two people.
0: He had a a good awareness of of like, am I talking too much? Am I talking too little? He knew that kind of stuff instinctively.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting was uh, he says near the end, he says, you know, it's the first time I've ever been on a show like this. That was interesting. Hmm. There, here I am, Bill Boggs. Bill Boggs, a kid from Northeast Philadelphia, right, whose mother was a body soxer. Had Frank Sinatra on my show. And he says, I've never been on a show like this before. <laughs> I forgot that he said that, but a couple years ago, I, had, I, did, the, I did the interview in 1975, and I never watched it again, until 2001. Yeah, it was like, I'm not obsessed with my interviews. And when I watched it again in 2001 with Peterson Cotter and some people, I took in stuff that I had totally forgotten, like that.
0: There are some books out there about Frank Sinatra. The one that I particularly really like is The Way You Wear Your Hat by Bill Zamey. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like The Way You Wear Your Hat.
0: And then they did the Sinatra 100 book last year. I was hoping you could tell us What books do you recommend for those interested in reading?
1: Unquestionably, The Song is You by Will Freewald. That is a a great book because it tracks his recording career. The Song is You by Will Freewald. And then our friend James Kaplan, two books, volume one, The Voice, and volume two, The Chairman, both by Doubleday.
0: Why in particular do you recommend the Friedwald book? I have to admit I hadn't heard of that book. Tell us about it. Well,
1: the Will Friedwald book deals with his recording career in depth. If you really know his music, it's fascinating. It's just—I've read it twice, and he's—he's he's doing a, a new version of it with uh, going going back and adding a lot of new material. It's, it's called "The Song Is You." It's excellent.
0: I was hoping you could also tell us about some of the performers that have. Carried on the Flame. For example, Robert Davi, a lot of people know as an actor, but also... Robert Davi.
1: Uh Yes, Robert. Well, you know, there's a lot of singers out there. I like Tony. What I like are singers who do not echo or imitate Sinatra. Michael Buble, to me, is very derivative. Actually, my favorite singer of material of the Great American Songbook, somebody who could sing I've Got You Under My Skin or Mack the Knife and make it totally their own is Bobby Rydell. Bobby Rydell is one of I'll I'll put Bobby Rydell against any male singer singing that kind of material in America. Uh, I also like Jack Jones a lot. Michael Feinstein is very smooth. Feinstein is more like a Johnny Mathis type singer, not an emotional singer like Frank. He's He's a great voice and really carries on a tradition. So I love to go. I like seeing Michael Feinstein. Mike, my top, oh, Steve Tyrell, again, doesn't imitate Frank. His movements aren't like Frank. His phrasing isn't like Frank, you know. I don't like, to, you know, I don't like personally I don't like to go see shows of Frank's to music because, you know, when you've seen the real thing a hundred times, you don't have a real hunger to see somebody else do it. But I'll tell anybody out there who, likes music, you see Bobby Rydell coming around, catch him. He started out as a drummer at age four. He has tremendous time sense, just like Peggy Lee has tremendous time sense. And was like a teen idol who just continued to evolve into a terrific singer and performer. And you should interview him sometime. As a matter of fact, he has a book out called Teen Idol on the Rocks. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I suggest interviewing him and... uh, Will Freewall is two people you want to talk to.
0: I'm definitely going to follow up on the Freedwall in particular. Yeah. How would you describe the influence that Frank Sinatra has had on your life?
1: Uh, I think that I am uh, constantly striving to... uh, I think that I'm a natural performer since I was a little kid. And I think by seeing Frank... uh, Perform more than 100 times. A lot of it I absorbed in terms of projecting energy and confidence and uh, meaning what you say when you say it. The ability to bounce back, you know, in any long career, you're going to have some, some valleys, you know. There could be a blessing in a valley. In any long career, you're going to have some downs, and you've got to be able to get up. Very important.
0: Why does Sinatra still matter?
1: Because of his music, because he had recorded over 1,500 songs, many of them the greatest songs ever written, many of them, some not, like the song Satisfy Me One More Time. Now, that is really an awful song. I can't stand it, but great songs. I think that's why it matters, because as Steve Wynn said, because of Sinatra, we saw how great the music could be. I love that quote. Because of Sinatra, we saw how great the music could be. So, because so today on Sinatra's birthday, you know, everybody should try to reach into their record collection or CD collection or go to Apple Music and put on That's Life and just listen to it and feel the vibrancy of it all and see how it may or may not apply to your own life and remember Frank because uh, he's always going to be with us one way or the other.
0: Well, Mr. Boggs. Thank you very much for sharing with us.
1: Paul, you're terrific. Thank you. Uh, You really got me talking today. My lovely, lovely, lovely better half. She is my better half. Just came into our apartment. I haven't seen her in 10 days. She's wearing a beautiful red sweater, so I'm going to hang up. Thank you for being on the radio and go give her a hug. All right. You want to actually, you want an interesting interview subject. Jane Wachow, my girlfriend, she is. Sammy Khan's cousin, and she worked for both Johnny Carson and Dick Clark, and really has some interesting stories about how she got those jobs, and her early days in show business, she's won a couple of Emmys, so if you ever need a guest to talk about really how, how to go out there and get a job, her stories about how she worked for Carson is great, it's a really great story, right out of college, that's another show for another day.
0: <laughs> Put in a good word for me there.
1: <laughs> we'll do. All right. right bye, bye, Paul. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Goodbye